0: there's only six doors left on the Advent calendar, uh, which means 18 chocolates have been successfully consumed. Uh, That's 24 days in total, which is quite a long countdown to a birthday. Uh, But in just one week from now we will be celebrating the day that Jesus was born and we all know that for children especially it's all getting very exciting. Uh, Yet as I've mentioned before, um, the Advent season is traditionally a time of, uh, to focus on the coming judgment, on repentance from sin, and on our need for a saviour. And, and sin and judgment are, if you like, quite dark themes. Uh, but it's a bit like turning out the lights before you bring in the birthday cake, uh, especially for those of us uh, who are a bit older, uh, for whom Christmas may have lost some of its sparkle, Uh, Perhaps it's a bittersweet time of year for you. Uh, Remembering the darkness can help us rediscover the surprise and the joy of Christmas again. Being in the dark makes us look forward to the light. And the prophet Isaiah, uh, he was also waiting in the dark for a special birthday. Uh, But his wait, it wasn't four weeks long. It wasn't only an advent calendar away. His wait was much longer, over a quarter of a million days, because Isaiah heard about Christmas 730 years before Jesus was finally born. But the reason God spoke of the birth of Jesus so far in advance was because the days that Isaiah was living in were very dark indeed. And the message about God's gift of a child was a message filled with light. It was a message designed to strengthen Isaiah's hope and to strengthen the hope of his hearers, to keep them trusting God, even as the darkness got deeper and deeper. And this message of a special child will do the same for us as we look back to Isaiah's day and face up to the reality of all the world's darkness, The message of the child that God promised to give us will also fill us with hope and renew our spiritual joy. This is the final uh, sermon in a set of three. Uh, We've looked at Isaiah now, chapters 7, 9, and 11. We've done those. last one is today. Uh, And if you've missed any of those, uh, you can catch up on our YouTube channel. If you don't know about it, you can see all of our services on there. Uh, Or if you just like audio, uh, you can get our podcast uh, via our website and now today we come to chapter 9, chapter 9 beginning at verse 1 and it begins uh, the first, just the first six words read nevertheless there will be no more gloom, there will be no more gloom but right there and then in the present in the day of Isaiah there was a lot of gloom verse 2 mentions the people walking in darkness and the darkness it refers to isn't the darkness you get after sunset what it's referring to is the political moral and spiritual darkness of the nations of Israel and Judah and the epitome of all those types of darkness was Jerusalem's King Ahaz and you may remember him from last week He was the king who put his trust in the Assyrian Empire to save his country instead of putting his trust in the Lord. And doing that demonstrated to the prophet Isaiah that Ahaz was severely lacking the wisdom and faith needed to lead God's people. So firstly, there was political darkness. At the very top of government, it was the blind leading the blind. Secondly, Ahaz was morally in the dark. He was up to his neck in wicked idolatry. God forbids every believer from worshipping any other gods. Ahaz went as far as making child sacrifices to them. And sadly, where the king leads, the people follow. And thirdly, as a result of their sin and idolatry, Ahaz and all of Israel were spiritually in the dark their relationship with God was almost totally broken. God told Ahaz he would bring down catastrophic judgment upon Israel and Judah. Under God's control, the king of Assyria who Ahaz went to for help would sweep over Israel and Judah's borders with his mighty armies and besiege and conquer city after city after city. I mentioned last week that in the British Museum in London, you can see a relief carving, a massive relief carving, made for the Assyrian throne room that depicts the Assyrian army conquering the Judean city of Lachish. And where the king would have sat on his throne on the wall behind him in this relief carving, it shows Assyrian soldiers presenting the king with the severed heads of Judean soldiers. That's what was to come. So in the end Israel and Judah's darkness would be the darkness of war, death, hunger and imperial oppression lasting for centuries. This is the history of a nation and leader that didn't do God. Political, moral, spiritual and national darkness. A sinful nation under the wrath of the Lord Almighty. And just as the world was dark then, there's darkness today. Yes, the sun comes up in the morning and, thank God, some of us have lived a fairly comfortable life. But we must not let that blind us to the fact that the world is filled with broken political systems, oppressive governments, injustice, rampant idolatry, moral degradation, war, famine, disease, and chaos. But despite Israel and the whole world being under God's curse, tasting his wrath, God had made a promise. A promise to Abraham, first of all, that through his offspring, God would bless the world. And a promise to King David that one of his descendants would rule the world forever and ever. God made these promises and he was going to stick to them. And so God did not completely abandon his people. No, he continued in his plan to give Israel and the world a saviour. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, Nevertheless, despite God's wrath, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Zebulun and Naphtali, known more commonly as Galilee, were the first territories in Israel to be invaded by Assyria. But one day, they would be the first places to be honored In God's saving plan for his people and Isaiah describes that coming day in verse 2 he's so certain it will come he describes all of these events as if they've already happened he says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the shadow of death a light has dawned they were in the dark but God promised a light would come I remember uh, when I was younger, uh, my mum and dad took me to a place in London called Chislehurst Caves, which is a massive network of caves originally dug out by the Druids, and then it sort of um, expanded by the Romans, and then it was used as air raid shelters during the Second World War, and we got given a tour. And you don't have to go far in before it becomes physically impossible for any sunlight to reach you. Uh, it's so twisty and turny that, that, it, that the light just can't get through. It's the most impenetrable darkness I've ever experienced. What happened was that uh, we all went in with torches, uh, but the tour guide at one point told us to turn the torches out. And it was utterly black. It was a place with no light whatsoever. And it was such a maze in that dark. If they'd taken the torches away for good, you'd spent your life trying to find your way out. So the only hope in such a place of darkness uh, was to have some light. And God promised Israel in their darkness to give them light. But just like the darkness wasn't literal sunset, the light isn't sunrise. The light is going to be military de a recovering population, plentiful harvests, the rebirth of God's kingdom. Have a look with me at verse 3. Isaiah says, in the past tense, as if it's already happened, because he's sure it will, he says to God, you have enlarged the nation. What Assyria was coming to decimate and depopulate, God is going to refill. And as a result, joy would return to God's people. The sort of joy you have when you manage, after many, many long and hard years, a full year's farming, you get a good harvest and you look forward to a year without hunger. That kind of joy, the sort of joy you have when you've won the war, not lost it, and the domination and oppression of the enemy is shattered. And this will happen, it says in verse five, because all the military gear and hardware about to pour across Israel's borders will eventually be piled up and burned. War will be over. Peace and prosperity will come at last. All the consequences of Israel's sin will be undone in place of God's curse will flow his blessing, just like he promised. And isn't that what we still want today, for a day to come when no one is at war, when injustice and oppression are unthinkable, when no one goes hungry? We all want it, but any realist would tell you that it's not going to happen because every single child born into the world perpetuates the problem. Not one of us is free from the corrupted desires that cause all this mess in the first place. So what was God promising that would bring such light into such darkness? How could God achieve all these things? Will he overcome the power of Assyria with even greater power? Will he establish peace by the threat of violence? No. God will destroy pride with humility, power with weakness, hatred with love. The light that will drive out the darkness is just a child, just a small, weak, vulnerable child, just like any other child, but also unlike any other child. Look with me at verse 6. Israel has this great future hope for, it says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and in total contrast to Ahaz and all other human rulers, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor refers to his unfailing and deep wisdom. He will lead his kingdom fully in accordance with the perfect will of God. Mighty God refers plainly and unashamedly to the fact that this human child will nevertheless also be God and so he will be almighty. No evil power will ever be able to harm his people or overthrow his reign. Everlasting Father is a title which tells us he will be like a father to his subjects, full of love and compassion, but also willing to discipline them in order that they might grow in godliness. And he will be Prince of Peace. What a wonderful title. Where Ahaz led the nation into sin and war and into judgment, this ruler will bring peace, peace with God, and peace between nations and individuals, all causes of anger and hatred and violence and injustice and separation, he will bring to an end. And in their place he will establish prosperity and well-being and love. And unlike a dream which fades when you wake up, his kingdom never ends. Look with me at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Says who? Says God himself. Just over the page, it says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is eager, God is zealous to make all these promises come true. The future we all long for, the light that will banish every cloud and shadow will not be achieved by any political party, philosophy or manifesto. It will not and cannot be generated by us in our own power and wisdom. We don't have it within us to put the world right, but God does and he will who will enlarge this nation in verse three god will who will increase their joy god will who will shatter the yoke that burdens them god will it says you will do this you will do this you will do this god and ultimately verse six where will this child come from he doesn't come from us rather he will be given to us to us a child is given We cannot save ourselves, but God has promised that he can, and he will, by giving us this child, a child born of a human mother, yet one who is also mighty God, the one through whom God made the world, given to us in the form of a tiny baby, one of us, to rule forever and ever. There's no hope, there's no ultimate hope in human wisdom, human power, human plans, human promises, but there is hope in this child, this son, this God. 800 years later, Jesus' disciple Matthew, writing in his gospel about the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry in Galilee, wrote this, he said, leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, the light dawned when Jesus came. And then Matthew writes, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The son Isaiah spoke of, the child who would be Almighty God, the child who would dispel the darkness and bring peace, is Jesus. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus who began his ministry to a nation under God's judgment with the word, repent. The future of the world, a future of peace and justice and freedom and joy begins with humbling ourselves enough to confess to God the depths of our own inner darkness and evil. It begins by confessing to God my need both for his forgiveness and for his power to change. It begins by admitting that I need to be saved not just from evil but also from myself. And as people respond to Jesus's call to repentance Jesus' kingdom grows and when we look at Jesus, don't we see the wisdom, the divinity, the love and the peace God promised on display? Ahaz looked for military support to save Israel, Jesus laid down his life. Ahaz worshipped idols, Jesus obeyed his father loyally and perfectly. Ahaz led his people into sin and endangered their lives. Jesus stood up to oppress us and valued the weak and the unseen in society. Ahaz brought alienation from God and war with Assyria. Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins, make us children of God, and heal the divisions and fractures of nation, race, and class. Isn't it a wonderful thought? that when we see Jesus doing all these things in the accounts of the Gospels, we are seeing our everlasting King. We're not watching a brief life that came and went 2,000 years ago. We're not watching something perfect but temporary. We are watching the eternal God of love and justice come among us, as one of us, to die and rise and ascend to his throne in heaven to be our everlasting human and divine king over his everlasting global kingdom. And every evil, every fault, every sadness, every moment of loneliness, every moment of pain or grief is brief and is temporary. Because what will last forever and ever in this world is not those things, but Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus, our wonderful counsellor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. But like Isaiah, we are living in the dark. The light dawned when Jesus came, but the shadow of death has not gone away. Jesus overcame sin and death and the devil at his resurrection, but they will only be shattered, destroyed and removed forever at his return. So like Isaiah, we hold on to the hope of light, the hope that is certain because it depends on the promises of a faithful and almighty God. And so we look forward for however long it takes, knowing that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are our perfect and forever king, that you gave your life for us, that you humbled yourself for us, and that you were filled with love and wisdom and power and peace and your good kingdom, your good and perfect kingdom will never end. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.